Good morning. Looking for a home for that. Just want to give myself a little bit of room. I'm Bob Walker, and I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life. Now, the bulletin has uh, Nick Wingholt's name as the preacher, but I have the privilege of filling in for him this morning, and I'm uh, thankful uh, that we uh, are wearing masks here, if only for me not to see the disappointment in your faces <laughs> as I make that announcement. Um, what a great passage, though, that we are encountering together this morning. So do you want great gain? Do you want something better than money? Are you committed to practicing godliness? Do you need encouragement to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called? To walk worthy of your place, your position in God's household? Do you need help identifying areas that will trip you up and trap you? Do you need help identifying the things that will destroy you? This passage is written for our instruction. It's God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching us, for reproving us, for correcting us, for training us to walk in righteousness. God's word will do what it says it will do. We need teaching. We need reproof. We need correction. We need training in righteousness. Now, the purpose of this passage that Eugenia just read is to encourage the church to walk in godliness and to warn the church of false teachers who are snared in their own ungodliness and they seek to lead others to be snared in the same way. So in shorthand, the purpose of this passage encourages us in godliness and warns us of deadly peril. This passage encourages us in godliness and warns us of deadly peril. So let's pray that God would grant us understanding of this passage and then obedience to his word. Heavenly Father, you are a great God. You are a, a, our creator. You are the ruler. We owe you everything. We owe you obedience at the very, very least. We owe you salvation. We owe you our lives. And you are gracious to communicate with us through your word. But we need your help again. We need your help to understand it. We need your help to, to live it out. And so we pray for you to help us. Help us grow in love towards you. Help us grow in love for each other. Love for your wor word and love for this world so that we can accomplish your mission. That we can share your gospel. And so in all these things, we are completely, completely dependent upon you. And it is good to always be dependent upon you. So we pray this confidently as your children in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So keep your Bibles open. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 10. Over the years, preachers and commentators have looked at this passage as a guide to diagnosing spiritual health. There are words in this passage passage that speak of good spiritual health, words like sound, as in sound words, or sound doctrine. There are words that speak of bad spiritual health, words like morbid, destruction, and grief. And we can relate the spiritual diagnosis we're able to make in this passage to physical diagnosis, uh, even of, uh, say, COVID. Now, here's a disclaimer. 
I'm not a doctor. If I make medical comments, I am speaking generally. Please do not make medical decisions based upon my illustration in this sermon. I am speaking in layman's terms. My medical knowledge has been mainly gleaned from movies and television shows. <laughs> I hope many of you can relate to this, though. So how do we handle COVID? We're all dealing with that right now. Where do we begin to diagnose this disease? Well, first, we have some experience of what good health is. You know, I know how I normally feel. I'm free of aches, normal energy levels, vigor. Unfortunately, all those things are changing gradually as I get older, but I, I still have, a, have an understanding of what I'm supposed to feel like. What happens next? I become aware of symptoms that point to something being wrong with my body. And I can see those symptoms. I can experience them. You know, I might start coughing. Just so you know, I'm, I don't have any of these symptoms right now. But I might start coughing. My throat could become sore. I experience congestion. I might develop some achiness and fatigue. Now, these are symptoms that could mean a lot of things. A cold, allergies, flu, some other virus. But these symptoms do lead me to dig deeper. deeper. So if you have these symptoms, what do you do next? You take your temperature. And if it's elevated, you suspect COVID, don't you? But you don't know for sure yet. So to be sure, you go get tested. And when the test comes back positive, you know for sure you have COVID. And because you know for sure, you know what steps to take next. Now, this passage helps us recognize some elements of good health, submitting to authority, advocating and believing sound doctrine, being content. This passage also helps us recognize symptoms of disease, advocating a different doctrine, developing an interest in controversies and disputes, loving money. This passage also describes the effects of the disease, a depraved mind, an aversion to truth, a wandering away from the faith, and then finally, a piercing of yourself with many griefs. This disease is unbelief, and it leads to death and destruction. It's not a physical illness, although its symptoms can be manifested in our bodies. It's a spiritual disease, immensely more destructive and dangerous than COVID. Now, next week, Whoever among us is healthy enough will preach the treatment plan for this disease. You can see the beginning of that plan in verse 11. Paul wrote, writes to Timothy, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That's the treatment. But this week, we're going to examine the disease. The Word of God does give us a more effective treatment for spiritual disease than the world can give us for a physical disease. What is that treatment? And I want to give you the hope right at the beginning. We're to repent and have faith in God. If you're not a believer, if you're not part of the household of God, it is time to repent of that unbelief, to turn in faith, trusting in Christ for your salvation. If you're a believer, you're a part of the household of God, it is time to act like that again. And you know what? We have to repent of our sin 
every day. We have to turn from it, and we have to turn to Christ in faith, again, trusting him daily in our salvation. So, this passage encourages us in godliness and warns us of deadly peril. We're going to look at this passage in three sections. So, section one is an example of healthy godliness in verses one and two. It's an example of healthy godliness, verses one and two. Our second section is an example of diseased godliness or ungodliness in verses three through five. Diseased godliness or ungodliness in verses three through five. And then section three is the pathology of ungodliness. I looked up the word pathology in case you were wondering. Pathology is the study of the causes and effects of diseases. So this morning, we are going to spiritual medical school here in the book of 1 Timothy. So let's start. Number one, an example of healthy godliness. And I'm going to read again verses one and two. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So slavery. First, this passage is not talking about slavery as it existed in the United States. Slavery in the United States was an abomination based on man-stealing. Exodus 21, 16 says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Slavery in the U.S. was not equivalent to slavery in those ancient biblical times. Slavery in the Greek and Roman Empire was different. It wasn't based on race. It was often sinful, and abuses were common, but in some areas, at some time, slaves were even afforded protections and rights. Paul, in this passage, is not commending slavery. He's describing what godliness looks like for believers who are slaves, who find themselves in the condition of slavery. The truth was, many believers were slaves. That was a common part of their society, and it created questions that Paul was obligated to answer. How do I act if I'm a slave? How do I treat my master? What if he's a believer? What if the slave is a mature believer, a teacher, maybe even a pastor, and the master is a new convert in the same congregation? Walking in godliness is not just a theoretical construct. Walking in godliness is part of every action and every relationship. Slaves are under the yoke. And this doesn't carry a negative connotation in Paul's writing. As Christians, we carry Christ's yoke. It's our duty, it's our task to carry out our work under the authority of another. We're part of the household of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. We're under the authority of the eldest brother, Christ. We are yoked to do his work. Now, Christian slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, this passage 
does not say their masters are worthy of all honor. It instructs slaves to regard their masters in that way. Now, that word regard literally means to count them as, to esteem them, to judge them as worthy. The, mean, the word means to lead out before the mind. So sometimes words like this, it's helpful to understand the opposite or the antonym. So the opposite is you follow your mind. So you can understand with your mind that your master is truly worthy and then you regard him that way. You follow your mind. Or you can understand your master is not worthy and then regard him that way. You follow your understanding and you disesteem your master. Christians, we're not called in this matter to follow our minds. We're called to lead our minds. We esteem our authorities, our masters, as worthy before our minds lead us there. So that there is a purpose in our regard for our masters. It's not just a thought exercise. We esteem our masters as worthy so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against, will not be reviled. So the name of God, we're part of God's household, 315. God's our father. We act in his name. We identify with him. We represent him to the world. Our actions as a slave or as anyone under authority reflect on the name of God, on his reputation. You know, our esteem for our masters reflects even on our doctrine. The reputation of the words of God is adorned by our actions as members of God's household. And that's what Paul meant in 1 Timothy 3.15. He described Christians as the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then what? The pillar and support of the truth. You are a pillar and support of the truth. You're a good member of the household of God if you belong to him. And you're a good member of the household of God when you esteem your masters as worthy. If you do this, you give no one justification to speak against the name of our God or our doctrine. But what if my master is a believer? I know what he has taught. He's to love me. He's to forgive me, comfort me, be patient, be kind, be forbearing. If I am a slave, I think it's time to kick back and relax. Nope. If your master is a believer, you serve them all the more. Why? You serve them all the more. We excel in serving. Go above what's required. We do more than we would even do if he were not a believer. Why? Because the one benefiting from your labor is a fellow brother a fellow member of God's family. You're not laboring under compulsion any longer. You are laboring out of your love for God. In fact, Paul flips that master-slave relationship on its head. The slave is now the benefactor. The master is the recipient of the benefits of the slave's labor. He's a member of your family. He's beloved. He's loved by God. And because he's loved by God and part of God's family, he's loved by you. 
So what's the application for us there? I think we can recognize that authority works best when it is submitted to. I mean, you can think about all of us were a child in a household at some point. Many of us are now parents with children of our own, and we exercise authority over our children. And when that child lovingly submits to that authority, there's harmony in the house. There's, there's, a, there's, there's blessings that occur because of that. But there are times, because the parent is the authority, that the parent has to exert authority, even when it's not being submitted to. And, and we can recognize that hardship. That should not be the case between members of the household of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Paul ends these two verses. He says, teach and preach these principles. This verb tense means to give constant attention and practice to. So teach, give instruction. Preach literally to call to one side to produce the effect of beseeching, of comforting, of exhorting, entreating. And what are we to teach and preach? These principles. So Paul's referring to all that has proceeded before, at least from chapter 5, verse 1, and probably the entire letter, and is probably even referring to uh, what he writes that follows this instruction. And just recall a couple of Paul's instructions to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 11. As he's giving him instructions, prescribe and teach these things. In chapter 4, verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. And that's why we're spending the time that we're spending in this book. We are taking pains with what the Lord is teaching us in 1 Timothy. We are absorbed in the things of God that are, that are being taught to us and preached to us in 1 Timothy. So that's Paul's example of healthy godliness. Now let's go to section two, an example of diseased godliness in verses three through five. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So verse 3, if, first-class condition, which means that assumes the reality of what follows. Again, not a thought exercise, this if. This either exists or it's going to exist in the near future. This means someone is or will advocate a different doctrine. Church, Covenant Life Church, we can expect to hear someone attempting to advocate a different doctrine to us. We work together to keep that outside the church. We have to be ready. When somebody advocates a different doctrine, when that happens, Paul tells us how to recognize it. So how do we recognize false teachers? Three ways. I'll just label them A, B, and C. So A, false teachers 
you can recognize a false teacher because he teaches a different doctrine. In other translations, it says those false teachers teach otherwise. God teaches us sound doctrine from his word. Christ spoke sound doctrine. Paul teaches sound doctrine. Learn sound doctrine. Recognize it. Love it. Be absorbed in it. Your pastors desire to and labor to teach and preach sound doctrine. You can recognize a false teacher. They teach differently. Sound is a word that means healthy. It's a root for the word we translate hygienic. It's a healthy, pure, undefiled. A false teacher teaches unhealthy doctrines, impure doctrine, unhygienic, unhygienic doctrine that causes sickness and disease. This is a passage about sickness and health. So B, how to recognize these false teachers. False teachers do not affirm sound doctrine. So what they teach contradicts God's words, Jesus' words, the apostles' words. They teach something other than sound doctrine, and then they go back and disagree with sound doctrine. And that's exactly why we ask you to listen to sermons, even here, with your Bibles open. You have the God-given responsibility to ensure your pastors teach sound doctrine. Someone preaches, you are to be a discerning listener. You listen, you read God's word, you compare, you hold us accountable. Paul told Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Church, be discerning. No sound doctrine. Know when somebody contradicts. C, how do we recognize false teachers? False teachers reject a doctrine that conforms to godliness. So how to diagnose false teachers and false teaching? Ultimately, how do you diagnose the sin of unbelief? And how do you recognize false teachers? Their doctrine doesn't conform to godliness. It does not lead to godliness. It's not according to godliness. It doesn't help you be godly. It doesn't lead to godly behavior in themselves. The whole purpose of this letter is so that we will know how to conduct ourselves. If we teach something that doesn't lead to godliness, it is false. And Paul says to flee from it. So let's continue to familiarize ourselves with our diagnostic tool. In verse 4, we have the then to the if in verse 3. So if anyone advocates a different doctrine, and I'll just add the then, he is conceited and understands nothing. So false teachers are prideful. They're puffed up. They worship themselves. And it shows itself in what they teach, and it shows itself in their attitude toward godliness. And later we see it shows itself in their love of money. False teachers are conceited. They're worshiping themselves. They desire their own kingdom over the kingdom of God. And then added to what they tr- added to that, they truly understand nothing of sound doctrine and godliness. What is worse than a conceited know-it-all? A conceited know-it-all who doesn't really know anything. 
false teachers don't really know. Sure, they're deceptive, they're plausible, they're attractive, they have an appearance of godliness, but they are spiritually ignorant. They do not have an experiential knowledge of and relationship with Christ. Their heart attitude, conceit, and arrogance. Second Peter 2, verses 18 and 19 says this about, about false teachers. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, come, by this he is enslaved. These are false teachers. Love God and he'll give you money and success. Love God and he'll give you health and happiness on earth. Those statements are false. Flee from that kind of teaching. Do not believe it. Believe the truth instead. Believe sound doctrine. So how does the false teacher manifest himself? How does he prove himself to be a false teacher? He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Because false teachers don't understand the truth, they obsess over terminology and attack sound doctrine and even the authority and reliability of the word of God. Paul already spoke about this in chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. So application. Be on the watch for false teachers. Do not perform the actions or have the attitudes of a false teacher. Are you majoring on minor things? Are you obsessed with obscure points of doctrine while being content to walk in sin? I mean, I speak to some of you. You might ask about anything, end times, how they interpret a single word in the book of Ezekiel and other disputes about words, or what's the exact right way to handle COVID responses in the church. And I love to explore some of those things with you. It is often profitable for me profitable for you and for the church. But if we're majoring on things that aren't at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're neglecting the gathering, if we're failing to handle money in a godly way, if we're making a habit of using pornography, we don't need to have disputes about words or obscure points. Ask yourself, what, what's happening in your hearts to produce ungodly acts, ungodly thoughts, ungodly attitudes, ungodly words? And where will this ungodliness lead you? How will it ensnare you and trap you? Ultimately, a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words will not conform to godliness. It's rooted in conceit. It'll lead to greater conceit. It will damage your understanding of truth and express itself in a morbid interest in controversies and disputes, literally word battles, and it will have other evil effects. And what are those effects? We can read them. Envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, 
and constant friction. Think about these things. They're not fruit of the Spirit. They're not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They sound a lot more like the deeds of darkness from Galatians 5.19. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. People of God, you can recognize false teachers. You can recognize, unfortunately, these same sins in yourself. I recognize them in myself. And thankfully, we have a Lord when we confess these sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us those sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Another effect of following false teaching, abusive language, language that does not edify. It's not helpful. It doesn't build up one another, Ephesians 4.29. Evil suspicions and constant friction, our words and our actions are indicators. They're the fruit of what's happening in our hearts. So I speak from the overflow of my heart. I post on social media from the overflow of my heart. I publicly reveal my heart in my words, both spoken and written. Now think about yourself. We're all tempted to think about somebody else's words right now, but please resist that temptation. Think about your words and your thoughts. Have you harbored evil suspicions of your brothers and sisters? Have you thought or even expressed that other brothers and sisters despise you by the way they want to take away your freedom by making you wear a mask. It's a hard thing to consider. Have you harbored evil suspicions of your brother or sister by suspecting they neither care for nor love you because they will not get a COVID vaccine or take COVID precautions as seriously as you do? Have these attitudes caused constant friction between you and other brothers and sisters? Have these ungodly attitudes caused constant friction within your own soul? People of God, put these attitudes aside. Flee from them. They are not according to sound doctrine that leads to godliness. You must, you must hold your convictions in love. Then speak your convictions in love and humility. You can diagnose your attitudes by the effects your convictions have on others and have on yourself. What did Paul say in chapter 4, verse 16? Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Do not be characterized by the things that characterize false teachers. The people of God love one another. They forgive one another. We forbear with one another and esteem or regard one another as more important than themselves. If a brother or sister posts something online that you dispute, 
Do not feel obligated to enter an online word battle with them. There are better ways and more godly ways to respond. And I know it's hard to hear, but consider how the word of God teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains you and me. False teachers, they even pursue a form of godliness as a means of gain, which brings us to our third section. So that was what disease godliness looks like or ungodliness. So what about the pathology of ungodliness? Pathology is the study of the causes and effects of diseases. So what are the causes and effects of false teachers and false teaching? Let me read 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 6 through 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. False teachers love money. They're motivated by the love of money. Paul highlights a contrast right at the beginning. You know, it's okay to to desire great gain. In fact, it's commendable. Jesus does not instruct his disciples to be so completely selfless that they do not desire gain. He does not tell them not to desire and work for treasure. He tells them to desire heavenly treasure, treasure that is eternal, treasure that does not deteriorate. Pursuing godliness produces great gain, great treasure. It produces a heavenly fortune. Godly works do not save any of us. Only God's grace saves us. But for God's people, good works produce heavenly riches, desired those kinds of riches. Those riches are rightly desired and richly given when accompanied by contentment. So what do you have? I mean, what do you have? Just think. You can open your wallet, look at your account, at your house, at your car. You have exactly what the Father has ordained for you to have. And contentment means you are in the perfect condition in which no additional aid or support is needed. You have a sufficiency for the necessities of life. You're a member of God's household. He determines what you need and he gives it to you. It's enough. Be content. If you need more, if you want more, ask him. If it's good for you to have it, he will give it to you. If it's good for you not to have it, to learn more, to rely on God day by day and moment by moment, he'll withhold it. Be content. There is worldly gain and there is true gain and they're not the same. You have food and shelter, be content. All these extra things, they're going to burn one day anyway. They're not going to make it with you to heaven. In fact, they may be a snare to you and lead you away from heaven now. False teachers desire to get rich. Sinning believers desire to get rich. And then what happens? Let's look at the progression. There's three steps. I'll label them A, B, and C. A, 
those who desire to get rich fall into temptation. That desire leads you to temptation. They're tempted by their own lusts. A desire is a settled wish, a settled wish to get rich. Do not that let money be your obsession. This desire is born in the heart. It produces sin in your mind, in your words, and in your actions. It's a seed that bears bad fruit. It bears thorns. And those thorns, those sins, they serve to entangle you all the more. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. So B, your own sin entangles you. It snares you. A false teacher desires money. He's not content. He sins. He sins as he works to acquire riches. And those sins snare him even further. Paul's not talking about the legal consequences of crime. He's talking about the effect of sin in a false teacher's life. He's talking about the effects of sin in our lives. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Examine teachers. We don't want false teachers here. Examine yourself. We want believers who sin to turn from their sin and turn in faith to Christ. What's the picture that Paul's painting here? I mean, you can think there's a bird. It was free, but now it's, there's a net thrown over it. It's snared. It's trapped. It's helpless. And then it's killed by the one who trapped it. Then what happens? It's pierced through. It's killed and cooked. The picture is of a bird roasting over a fire. A false teacher's own sins trap him. I mean, we see that. I mean, we can read the news. We might even have experiences of that in our own lives where a false teacher's sin eventually traps him. But you know what? Our sins can trap us, can snare us. A false teacher's sins leads men into ruin and destruction. Even just as an example, remember the Israelites. You know, they're going to the promised land. They're instructed to kill and to drive out the people of the promised land. They failed to believe God in this. And, they, and the people that they let live are described as a snare to them who lead, continued to lead them into sin, which led to suffering, which led to exile. C, your foolish and harmful desires cause ruin and destruction. Unrighteous actions snare those who practice them. Your unrighteous actions snare you. Do you indulge in anger, in bitterness, and judgment? Those attitudes, unchecked, unrepented of, will snare you and will lead you to destruction. Flee those. Do you habitually use pornography? Same thing, destruction. Do you desire to be rich? Are you discontent with what you have? Snare, entanglement, destruction. Listen, money's not evil. The love of money is evil. Money can be a gift of God, Deuteronomy 8.18. Only the love of money is sinful. The love of money is a characteristic of false teachers. Listen to what 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many 
will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. I mean, you just hear echoes back to 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2, and following. And then verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Listen, gold replaces God for false teachers. Don't let gold replace God in your heart. Don't let gold replace God in your heart. Flee, flee from the love of money. So, conclusion. The test for false teachers and false teaching, do they produce godliness? Do they cause us to wander away from the faith? Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. He warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. When you turn from truth, you will turn to lies. James, in chapter five, verse nine, told the brethren, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and then one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Beware of things that cause you to wander from the faith. Use this passage to strengthen your walk in godliness. Use this passage to assess your spiritual health, to take your temperature. Use this passage to evaluate the teaching that you hear. Now we're coming to the Lord's Supper and it's our family meal and it's for members of God's household. So how do you become a member of God's household? You can't earn it. You can't do anything of yourself to make it happen. It's a gift of God. You know, we think I can, I, if I'm just a good person, if I'm good enough, if I'm better than average, if I'm better than most, or just better than I was yesterday, I'm, I'm on the right track. God will accept me for that. That's not true. You know, John, uh, preached about our righteousness being as filthy rags. And that, that word filthy means like really disgustingly filthy. If you just want to get an idea, I mean, you just pop your head into the nursery in that infant section, maybe towards the back room, and you can, you can, get, you can get some visuals or at least some smells of what a filthy rag is. And, and so the picture is of us coming to God, accept me, and here's what I have to offer, and you give him a filthy rag. But that's not what we try to do with our righteousness. We don't just say, I did one good thing. We get a whole pile of filthy rags, and we offer that to God as his basis to accept us. That's not a good thing. How do we become a part of God's household? How do, how how do we take hold of what God freely gives us? We believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then he saves us. So Jesus Christ, God became man, dwelt among us. He lived the life perfectly that we should have lived. At the end of that, 
he died. He did not earn that death. He did not deserve that death. We did. He sacrificed himself for us. Now, how do we take advantage of that sacrifice? We don't do good works. Doesn't, doesn't help us at all. We trust in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. He did the work. We just accept that. We turn away from our own sins and we trust solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. After he was killed, he rose again. He proved that that sacrifice was perfect, complete, and sufficient for us. So if you haven't believed that up to this point, believe it now. Become a child of God. And then when you have, talk to one of the pastors about that. Talk to any one of our members. We can share the gospel with you. We can help you understand what it means to be a child of God and to walk that way. So we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And this is a time for us, God's household, to remember that free gift, that work that God accomplished for us. So if you're a believer, if you've been baptized, if you're a member of a local church, a church that can attest to your walk with the Lord, and if you're walking in repentance, you're not harboring sin, then we invite you to come share this meal with us. You know, it's okay to just sit and observe if you're not part of the household of God yet, if you haven't been baptized, it's okay to just sit and observe and then consider what God is teaching us through this meal that we take together to consider whether you trust, whether you rely on Christ alone to save you. If that's you, please observe and then come speak to one of our pastors. We want to share this relationship. We want to share this joy in being part of God's household with you. We are not looking to exclude anyone. So God loves us. He loved us enough to send his only son. We love God. We love Christ. We love each other and we love the world and we want to share what we have, what we've received freely from God. We want to share that with all. So please come and believe. So Please consider for just a moment how you're going to respond to God's word. And uh, I think music will probably start playing. And then we'll uh, come together to take the elements here at the front table and then take those elements back to your table. And then Kevin will lead us in eating and drinking. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.